It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Eric Topol was struggling to recover after knee surgery. His knee was swollen and he was experiencing incredible pain. Inexplicably, his doctor prescribed him an antidepressant. Topol, who's a prominent cardiologist, says his story is indicative of a growing problem in medicine. It's becoming inhuman. The problem we have today, there's very little time when you go to see a doctor. They don't have all the data, they don't have time to review it all. We have incomplete data, incomplete context, insufficient time, and that we have the state of shallow medicine. Today, Topol explains how artificial intelligence can improve the doctor-patient relationship. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from Aspen Ideas Health. Dr. Eric Topol believes artificial intelligence can bring humanity back to medicine. A subtype of AI, called deep learning, he says, can help free physicians from rote tasks like taking notes. He thinks real healing takes place when a doctor listens to a patient who needs to be heard. In his book, Deep Medicine, Topol describes how deep learning is being used to treat patients, including those suffering from mental illness. With too few clinicians to treat people with depression, Topol thinks AI could be a game-changer. Our speech, breathing, and even the way we type can reveal our state of mind. There are so many ways that we can objectively determine and track continuously state of mind. So it's really exciting because for the first time we have objective means, which we've never had before. The only problem is they haven't been applied yet. Topol, who's executive vice president of Scripps Research, speaks with New York Times columnist David Brooks about how technology can help bring compassion back to medicine. Here's Brooks. I guess the first thing I should say, there are certain extremely complex systems that I try really hard to learn about, but I never quite get there. And one of them is quantum mechanics. Uh, The second is my wife, who's a very complex system. Uh, The third is the healthcare industry. And the fourth is AI. So these these final two subjects are things I really don't understand. Uh, And so I'm a little nervous about being up here. But the great thing about the book is that it, it talks about technology a lot, but really in the service of humanizing medicine. And so I want us just to walk through a bit of what AI is, what it's doing, and how it actually could lead to a better healthcare system. But I was hoping we could start with a story you tell in the book about your knee, which is symptomatic of a lot of what's wrong with our healthcare system. Sure. Well, first, it's great to be with you, David. Uh, and uh, I understand the complexity, especially of health systems and AI. And in fact, it was that latter uh, which really led me to want to delve into this very deeply. Uh, the story of the book is, begins with my knee. Uh, I underwent three years ago a total knee replacement because of a congenital condition, a rare condition called osteochondritis dissecans. And I specifically lined it up to go to the orthopedist that I had sent all my patients to because I had very good results. And in fact, the operation itself was a great success. It was just afterwards that it was a disaster. And uh, I start off with a conversation. Um, My wife, uh, Susan, who's here with me, and I went to see the orthopedist a month post-op. And uh, then I had my leg was swollen. It looked like I had gangrene. It was was just, I had been in horrible pain, couldn't sleep, but, you know, for minutes or an hour at a time, and I'd been having crying spells. And I really, uh, 
it was in desperate shape. And um, he, he looked at me and he said, I think you need to get antidepressant medications. <laughs> and that was kind of a robotic response. And the other part of the, the layers of this are that uh, had he used AI, he would have had all my data and would have told him, this guy Topol has osteochondritis and he's going to have a really bad arthrofibrosis reaction. And I've got to do special things so he doesn't get that. Because that's more common than an infection, which is the dreaded one, which he told me about before the operation. It happens twice as often, and it's this scarring. It's basically a kind of um, reaction to this uh, artificial knee. It's like a, a, a major inflammation and all the scarring. So I had that, and I, I actually have never fully recovered. But it's the problem we have today, David, is I think you know most everyone here has experienced. There's very little time when you go to see a doctor. They don't have all the data. They don't have time to review it all. In fact, even if they could review it all, it's only the data from that particular health system or that area. So we have incomplete data, incomplete context, insufficient time, and that we have the state of shallow medicine. Yeah. Now, you have a sentence in the book. Um, Over the course of your career, you've seen the steady degradation of the human side of medicine. So what's driving that? And yeah. This is, there was just one case, but how does it manifest itself more broadly? Well, the, I think the... The, the lack of time with patients, averaging single digits per encounter in the U.S. is certainly uh, a big part of it. But it started back in the 1980s. So I finished medical school in 79. And prior to that time, when you, the relationship with a doctor was precious. Uh, there was trust. There was presence. There was lots of time. It was a human bond. And what happened around early 80s, many different factors took uh, hold, but essentially it became a big business. And things happened like uh, the relative value units, which basically uh, really diminished the value of interaction, but increased the value of things like operations and procedures. And then the latest hit in the 90s was the electronic health record, which converted doctors and nurses and all clinicians to data clerks. And that has basically led to this remarkable despiriting. Uh, a disenchantment level we've never seen, with more than half of clinicians suffering burnout, 20% clinically depressed, the highest rate of suicides ever among doctors in the history of the profession. So we have seen a lot of degradation. And the main problem with the time, it's not just the patients feel shortchanged, the doctors can't fulfill their mission. Why did they go? Why did anybody go into healthcare? to look after patients if they can't look after patients and provide care. So that's kind of the state that we're in right now, yeah. unfortunately. Just a, maybe a little biographical detour. Um, why'd you go into cardiology or even yeah, medicine? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I had actually set out to be going into diabetes because my father um, uh, had all the complications as an insulin-dependent diabetic. But when I went to UCSF, my mentors there encouraged me because it was a very exciting time. It was the first uh, clot dissolving therapies, the first balloon opening up arteries, the first everything. And so I just got uh, captivated by it and was very glad that it w- I could do, get in a, a field that you could feel like you're really doing a lot. Who was the guy? DeBakey, was that? Well, DeBakey was the surgeon in Texas. My uh, mentor was kind of Chatterjee at UCSF, uh, who uh, is a legend and was a great humanist, uh, which was another big influence. Uh, when he 
um, would lose a patient. Um, he would go into a, a crying, uh, deep state, um, and you know it took a while to get him out of it. It, it. He cared so deeply for every one of his patients, and you don't see that so much today. It's mainly it's not because the people don't have empathy; it's just they don't have a chance to to get it out to express yeah. it. I've had two, maybe two encounters with the con- medical conferences. One was I saw a Debakey lecture once uh, through a room of cardiologists. And somebody passed out, and the person next to him screamed, is there a doctor in the house? (laughs) The other, I gave a speech to a gigantic conference of neurosurgeons. And instead of calling them neurosurgeons, just by a slip of the tongue three times, I called them narcissists. (laughs) 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 The weird thing was, they were not offended. They took it as a a reality. Uh, anyway, that's a detour. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about AI. I, I sort of, I wish it wasn't named that, to be honest. Yeah. It yeah. makes it seem like the ro- robots are taking us over. Yeah, you know, but, and I, I agree with you. It's a terrible term, but, you know, it's an old term, as you are well aware. It's 50, 60 years at least old. The new term that is applicable to what we're talking about is deep learning. It's very different than just general AI. What it means is taking uh, data, uh, extensive data and putting it through these uh, neurons that are like our neurons in our brain. And it, it basically is the data um, itself determines how many layers to, to figure out all these features. So all these inputs could be an image, uh, a scan, it could be um, a skin a lesion picture, it could be a voice, whatever it goes through. And then it, the output is the answer, an accurate answer. So deep learning is the transformative subtype of AI, which is uh, just rocking it in the, in the world of healthcare in terms of what it can do. It's doing things we never thought was possible. And just to give you one example, um, if we give a picture of a retina to the leading retinal experts of the world, and we say, is this from a man or a woman? The chance of them getting it right is 50-50. <laughs> Whereas if you train a machine, a deep learning, it's over 97% accurate. Now, I know there are other ways to tell whether it's a man or a woman, <laughs> but you get the picture. Right? Yeah. Huh. So give us some other examples, say, in radiology of what some of the other ways that you see the, the most powerful transformative effect. Yeah, so radiology is often cited as the leading edge, but, uh, and it is. I mean, there, there are a lot of things happening in radiology. So any scan, a CAT scan, um, you know, X-ray uh, MRI, any type of scan can be read more accurately uh, and uh, uh, getting the uh, accuracy of I mean, speed uh, that would make radiologists, uh, you know, feel that they have been superseded in their abilities. But that doesn't mean we don't want to have a sign-off or oversight by a radiologist. It just means it can really catalyze the process. And one thing about radiologists that most people don't know is that over 30% of scans uh, have a false negative. That is, something is missed. So that can get down to low single digits, never get down to zero, but maybe in the 1% or 2% with the use of training uh, machines. So radiologists have, have had a big uh, benefit. They will derive uh, quite a bit of uh, augmented uh, intelligence, if you will. But also we've seen a big jump in other fields, uh, especially uh, noteworthy um, is in gastroenterology. So having a colonoscopy is not 
many people's favorite thing to do, and it's even worse if they miss something, and it's common. Small polyps, diminutive polyps, which can be precancerous just as much as big polyps, can be missed. And a randomized trial showed that the missing them by machine vision, AI, deep learning, can be brought down to almost zero, which is great. And then another area that's had a lot of uh, perhaps the most uh, rigorous work is in eye diseases. The ability to diagnose diabetes retinopathy, which is frequently missed, which now can be done by the receptionist, doesn't really even require a doctor at all. Uh, and uh, also things like um, uh, many other conditions like macular degeneration. And so eye disease are going through revolution using deep learning. Okay, let me, let me take advantage of my ignorance here. So I have a pain in organ X. I go into you, you put me through the whole AI experience, you, or whatever data you can get. What is, the out, what, is the machine, what is the machine's outcome? Is it, there's a diagnosis, here's what you should do, or is it just, here's the diagnosis? Yeah, great point. So today, it's really mostly diagnosis. It's not really coming up with recommendations for therapy. Diagnosis, this is something, again, that most people aren't aware of. We have a, a rate of 12 million serious misdiagnoses a year. It's hard to imagine that we live with those, and many of them could be uh, you know, life-threatening. So we want to get the diagnosis story straight. That's where AI, deep learning, has its biggest impact. Treatment you know, later, uh, but, and the other thing about this is it isn't just on the doctor's side. We're starting to see AI, deep learning, take hold on the, on the consumer patient side. Uh, so it's, but that's all in the, in the realm of diagnostics. Yeah. One of the most exciting parts for me was uh, about mental health yeah. and about being able to hear the, vocal, the tones of a person's voice or even go through Instagram and look at facial expression and predict suicidality and things like that. Um, t- t- tell us about what's, what's good and bad. It's, it seems extremely, potentially extremely important and completely horrifying all at the same time. Right. <laughs> well, I think you've summed that up well. Uh, So mental health is a problem with depression being the number one cause of disability and a grossly insufficient number of professionals to help people with depression. Besides that, our treatments for depression, which often rely on medications, they often don't work. And it takes a long time to figure out that they're not doing anything. And they have lots of side effects and costs. So it's kind of a mess of a field. And it's critical that we get this straightened out. And there, deep learning has tremendous potential because it turns out that the things that we do naturally, like talk, our speech is rich about our state of mind. The tone, the intonation, all the aspects of our speech uh, relative to our baseline. You can tell a person if they're depressed better than they know themselves subjectively. Then you add on things like your breathing pattern. If you sigh a lot, it's saying that you're depressed and you may not even be in touch with it, you're sighing. Then you have the keyboard of your smartphone when you're texting or doing an email or on your, uh, lap, your laptop, the way you touch the keys. And then it goes on. You're, you know, it could be your heart rate and your, your vital signs and you know, facial recognition. So there are so many ways that we can objectively determine and track continuously state of mind. So it's really exciting because for the first time we have objective means, which we've yeah. never had before. The only problem is they haven't been applied yet. Right. And we, have to, we don't know how many of these things you really need. That is, when does it get saturated? And is it different for certain people? Right. Like for certain people, just knowing that they are reclusive 
that they don't go anywhere, they have no physical activity, that is what the ticket is that you, you made the diagnosis and the, you can quantify it. For other people, it could be their speech. Yeah. So there's a lot of work to be done, but it's, it's rich. So, is the, so just for example, is the tone of voice flatter on a person? Right, definitely. And then you can, you know, there are many algorithms now because right. speech is just as developed as images with uh, deep learning. So there are many ways to quantify that, you know, to like the decimal point. Yeah. Uh, we're not talking about, you know, a zero or one. We're talking about really uh, shades of gray. So it's impressive what, where that's headed. The other thing that, uh, David, about the mental health thing that I think most people would never have predicted, I certainly uh, didn't, people are more comfortable to share their innermost secrets with an avatar right. instead of a human being. Right. So if we can exploit that, and in fact, some of these uh, uh, entities that are working with avatars are starting to develop ways so that we can get some of that help, some of that bolstering right. through a, a non-human um, to deal with the lack of professionals that we have today and the preference of people. Yeah. I actually found that horrifying. <laughs> the fact that, uh, that you know, people are more comfortable talking to a robot than a human being. Um, just seemed, well, A, it seems, frankly, narcissistic seduction because you're talking to something and you will never have the demands of a relationship with that thing. Right. It can't be good long term, I was thinking. Well, and it gets back to the creepy side. Do you yeah. really want to have your mind being tracked? But maybe if you've got significant depression, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and maybe also we want to get away from medications treating depression, and there's lots of other approaches. So, you know, perhaps for short term, yeah. maybe people would want to go through yeah. that. And you had mentioned that Facebook will, will occasionally privately intervene depending on the posts of the people on Facebook and and you had mentioned made a good point there are going to be Facebook people here that they don't actually release how they the algorithms they don't release any of their internal workings of how they figure that out that's right no it's a real problem um, particularly since this data is not protected the privacy issues are really undermining the, the, the success of the things we're talking about and so that has to get straightened out. There, there's one thing about privacy for non-health and medical matters, but this, this is something that's really critical. Yeah, I want to take you back to the 90s uh, when the Internet and all that was just getting going, and there was this great burst of optimism that we'll be able to really communicate with each other, world peace will happen, we'll all get to know each other. Uh, <laughs> and it hasn't really worked out that way. And Neil Ferguson, this historian, went back and said, we should have understood that because when pr the printing press was first invented, people had the same reaction. Oh, we can all share books. We can, we'll all communicate with each other, and we'll have world peace. Instead, we had 200 years of religious wars because uh, getting to know each other maybe wasn't such a good thing. I don't know. Uh, but so what's the... What's the are, are we too optimistic, and what's the thing that worries you about all this? Well, um, you know, I think the idea that technology um, has negative consequences um, is, is real. Um, but, you know, we're kind of in a desperate situation right now in healthcare. We have gotten it down to um, a, a, a situation which is not only untenable, but really uh, how can this be sustained and potentially get worse. So my biggest fear, you know, I, I have concerns about the privacy and security, obviously, uh, things like the bias that's embedded, it's mainly human bias into algorithms, things like worsening inequities, which we already have serious problems. Lots of those problems that are, are front and center. But to me, the biggest issue is that if we don't get this right, uh, that is the gift of time, all these efficiencies, 
accuracies, pr uh, productivity, uh, ability to process information uh, for both patients and doctors at, at, at a speed and uh, completeness that never was conceived before. What will happen is, if we don't stand up for patients now, the administrators, the managers, who have nothing to do with patient care, they're just the bean counters, they will um, make things worse. They will make the squeeze continue. And we will see even further attrition. So this is the time where we have to say, this opportunity is not likely to represent itself for generations, if ever. So uh, I do agree that overall there is a hit of technology, but here we have de dehumanized healthcare. We have gutted the care of healthcare. This is our only shot to get it back that I know of. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Today's moderator, David Brooks, is featured in our most popular episode. In The Choices That Create Your Life, Brooks explores a life well lived. A successful life, he says, usually depends on making four major commitments to a spouse or family, a faith or philosophy, a community, and a vocation. So how do we choose what we will commit to, and how do we execute those commitments? Find the episode in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. Aspen Ideas To Go is also available on the NPR One app. Let's get back to today's conversation featuring David Brooks and Eric Topol. Here's Brooks. Why should we think, as long as the financial centers, fee-for-service and all that are in place, why should we think anything technological will shift that basic logic that there's an incentive just to speed through people and not really get to know them. Yeah, well, I think it, it comes down to the point that you know, our intelligence uh, maybe is sobering, but it's not going to change. Human intelligence is kind of fixed, right? <laughs> and machines are just going to get a lot smarter in terms of the tasks that they can do. And so we, as humans, need to become more humane and to take advantage of the gradient that exists now, and it's going to get, uh, ideally, if we emphasize what are our qualities, what are our unique things that we bring, and there's nothing more important than our health. So, uh, you know, I think that that's why we have to look at technology, not with a blind eye by any means, but to take the things that it can do to give us this gift of time, which is the beginning of the restoration, yeah. the beginning of reestablishing trust and presence and a relationship. Because the patient-doctor relationship is almost non-existent. Some of you may have that, but most people are roughed up when they go to a doctor today because they feel like, hey, I didn't even get examined. Or I had just a few minutes, I never even saw the doctor's face. Yeah. They were pecking on a keyboard. That's kind of the problem we have today. Yeah, you have a good anecdote where you're practicing with another surgeon, I guess, and he does the the touching and the the touching of the patient, you don't, and the patient's upset with you. Yeah, no, I had a, uh, a patient from back in the days in Cleveland come to visit me in San Diego on a kind of urgent basis, and in, I was in the room, but my colleague was doing the exam because they wanted to whisk him away to the cath lab, and I didn't want to hold things up. And so um, when I went to visit him in the hospital uh, hours later, for the first time ever in a, in a relationship that we had for you know more than a decade, uh, I, I look, he looked cross. I said, well, what, what's the matter? 
He said, you didn't examine me. I said, my gosh, you know, I was watching you being examined, and I didn't want to hold up the works. Anyway, we, you know, I, I apologized, and I, I understand people do want, in fact, that's a ritual. When you go to the doctor, and they don't even listen to your heart, or they listen to it through your shirt or blouse, you know, you know that you're not getting the real deal. And in fact, you are submitting this ritual, which is a, a you know a time-honored thing. When you go to the doctor, you actually want to have a real exam, and that doesn't happen that much anymore. It's amazing. Yeah. So you make this parallel to driverless cars. Yeah. That um, they they probably won't replace humans, but there's it's the interaction that matters. Yeah. So you, I think you know, you follow this uh, whole world of tech uh, well, and there was this amazing hype about how there's going to be these driverless cars that pick you up like Uber and Lyft and under and any conditions. They have no human backup. It's called Level 5 by the Society of Automotive Engineers. Total autonomy. Well, now we have the realization that will never occur because there will be weather conditions, there will be road conditions, and all sorts of things that will never get rid of human backup. And the best we can ever achieve is so-called Level 4, uh, conditional human backup. Now, with medicine, there are certain things like patients can now uh, get, if you're in the UK or other countries, you can get your urinary tract infection diagnosed uh, with deep learning very inexpensively, going just to the drugstore to get the kit. You can get your child's ear infection diagnosed, a uh, skin rash diagnosed. So the list is increasing quickly, doctorless. But these are non serious, not, not the kinds of things that. Uh, you have to rely on a doctor. In fact, you can get them done more accurately without a doctor, quicker and less expensive. So we'll see these things develop for consumers, patients, but uh, all these serious matters are going to require doctors. So that's basically going to get to level three, which is this intermediate form. We're not going to go doctorless, only in special non-serious circumstances. Yeah. I'm going to open the floor to questions uh, shortly, but... How are, how are doctors doing? And uh, empathy is something that's trained. It's not an innate thing. How are doctors being trained in empathy, and how should they be trained? Well, it's interesting because you can cultivate empathy. It isn't something you're just born with in genetics. And medical schools don't generally, there's 150 of them in this country, they don't generally put much into this. But um, empathy is vital. Basically, the idea of being able to be compassionate, uh, being able to put yourself in the patient position and perspective is so uh, remarkably critical. But I think the problem we have today is there's plenty of empathy among doctors and nurses and clinicians. It's there. It just isn't able to come out. But also, we don't spend enough time to cultivate it. Uh, we do have uh, much more of this idea of looking at the scan instead of the patient or re reviewing the lab data instead of the patient. We don't listen to the patient's story. So the way it works today in this limited time is within seconds, something like 18 to 22 seconds, the patient is interrupted. So how can you get empathy if you don't even let the patient tell their story? And by the way, that story is never going to get digitized. It's not an AI thing. It's something that you really, that's a human thing for someone to tell their story about what their symptoms and what their concerns are. So empathy is listening, step number one. And, you know, you're really cueing in and that presence. Presence is, is more absence today. 
Yeah. Finally, talk about what you're doing with NIH. And the, the scarce resource here is actually information. So. Yeah, so uh, we were just talking before we got started. There's a, uh, I don't know how many of you have heard of the All of Us program. A few people. Well, okay, quite a few. It's a program of a million uh, Americans and probably will wind up being well more than a million. There's a couple hundred thousand that have been enrolled. All of you are welcome to enroll. It's a uh, study where uh, the people uh, come in of more than half are of non-European ancestry, underrepresented minorities. They will all have eventually, at least if they choose, their genome sequence, their gut microbiome sequence, all types of, types of sensors. All the data will go back to them. Uh, and uh, this is a, the biggest program ever to be launched in medical research in the United States. And uh, it's going to take about a few more years to get the whole million people in. But we'll be communicating uh, on a frequent basis about the results of that person back, as well as uh, people in the whole cohort. And it's very exciting. So we have a big uh, role of that at Scripps Research. Uh, and it's now about a year and a half into it. Okay. I started wearing a Fitbit. And it was telling me I was getting really good sleep between 8 and 11 in the morning. <laughs> And I realized I wasn't asleep. I was writing in those days. So I don't know if my heart rate goes down or something like that. And I'm doing what I should be doing. I don't know. Well, you do bring up a good point. Is the sensors that a lot of people have experienced to date, you know, are not really medicalized and they're not all that accurate. And counting steps or, you know, crude measures of sleep are not the kind of, you know, the sensors that we would want to rely on. That depresses me. Okay, um, <laughs> let's open the floor right here. Let's start in the front. We have some microphones coming around. Thank you. I'm Daryl Gray with The Ohio State University. Um, can you comment a bit on the potential for AI in reduction of health disparities? Yes. So um, this is a big issue uh, that... Uh, inequities are as bad as you can imagine in this country. Um, I just was looking at the Washington Post today, and it was about uh, people in Tennessee waiting outside in the cold uh, to be getting free care, whereas that's available, you know, most any other country uh, without having to wait in, for days outside in the cold. So we have serious inequities in this country. Um, and uh, the question is, can an AI improve that, or will it worsen it, as Daryl's pointing out? So I think it's fair to say that you can markedly reduce inequities. Uh, we have examples of this. So one of my favorite um, uh, uh, apps is Smartphone Ultrasound, where you just plug your smartphone, a probe, into the base of your smartphone, and then you can take pictures of any part of the body except the brain. So in Africa, this is being done in places where they wouldn't have any technology and getting algorithms to read that uh, ultrasound. So they're getting medical grade scans in places that would never be able to afford that type of uh, technology. So you can reduce inequities. There's lots of other examples because we're talking about relatively cheap chips, apps, software. Uh, but you can also make it worse if you only make it available to people who are affluent. So this could go either way. But we need to really push on it to, to use this and exploit the opportunity to reduce the inequities because it's such a big problem. Okay, right over there. Uh, this is anecdotal, but I hope it will lead to something else. As we get older, we collect a whole bunch of doctors in different fields. Uh, all of our sessions with our doctors are leisurely. 
Uh, there's a lot of uh, phone calls back and forth between us, and we have never had the feeling that we are anything less than a human being. And what I wanted, want you to address is how much of this, and I'm sure a lot of it, is as economic status, geographical, and how you can put emphasis on those places that don't have the privileges we have instead of just spreading it across the whole spectrum. Well, I, I guess, so you're saying that you've never had a, a, a negative experience. Yeah, you're fortunate. How many people here have had a negative experience? Uh, I think you're in the minority. Um, all right, so the first thing that we could do, which is already being done uh, in the UK and select centers and in many centers throughout China, is to liberate from keyboards. Keyboards are the common enemy of patients and doctors. And now with natural language processing, which is a subtype of AI, different than deep learning, but it's a lot of the same principles. Uh, we're already at a point where that can be done. It's just a matter of rolling it out. Uh, and there are select places it's being piloted here in this country. If we can get rid of data clerk functions for doctors, that frees up a tremendous amount of time. Also, it restores the face-to-face -face contact. So we have to think of the ways that we can uh, do this that our keyboard liberation is about voice processing and you get much better notes, synth synthesized notes from that conversation than you get from the cut and pasted notes that are in your electronic records, which are 80% of the notes are cut and pasted and most of them have s significant errors that are propagated from one note to the next. So these are things that cut across all uh, uh, health encounters, not just people who are happy with their care, but for, for everyone. Uh, hi, I wanted to, you, you talked about being uh, liberated from the keyboard, but I wanted to get your feedback on, um, I think, an organization that's using keyboards quite effectively. I don't know if you're familiar with Crisis Text Line. What is the name? Crisis Text oh, Line. Oh, okay, I've heard of it, yeah. So, yeah, this is a, a mental health uh, crisis line that uses text interaction as opposed to um, getting on the phone with a counselor, although you are live with a crisis counselor. Um, but they are a pioneer in using deep learning um, to better connect people with services on their platform. For example, like they program their platform with certain words that they thought would be indicative of a suicide attempt like die, um, suicide, etc. And what they actually found was that the word ibuprofen was 14 times more likely to predict uh, a suicide attempt. So these are places where we can use machine learning to actually better inform people who, who may be very empathetic, but would probably miss something like that because it seems sort of counterintuitive. But on a disintermediated sort right. of interaction right. platform, um, I think they're just a, an example of somebody who's really doing this combination of machine learning and human intervention in a really good way. And I'd love to get your Yeah, I, I, actually, I think I referenced it in the chapter on mental health in the book, which, what you're doing. The point is a great one, and that is within text, not just speech, there are cues that we wouldn't know just like you're, you're pointing out with the ibuprofen, that actually are indicators of suicidal ide, ideation. Um, so this is really important is that, and it really summarizes the whole opportunity here, that uh, machines can be trained to see things, uh, learn things that we can never do. 
And who would have ever thought that was going to be the signal, right? And this is, I think, really important because it, predicting suicide, psychologists and psychiatrists are not very good at this at all. You know, I, I review that data in the chapter. But we can actually get help from deep learning uh, to find the, the, the cues that we should be um, zooming in on. Yeah. I'm Bruce McEver. I'm a cancer survivor. And as a cancer survivor, there's... I've been sequenced, I've been x-rayed, I've been cat scanned. I've got all the information that could possibly have been, has been gathered from me. And yet every time I go to the doctor, I spend the first half hour filling out a, from two to four to six pages of information. Why isn't that traveling with me? And why isn't it traveling with everyone in this room? Yeah. After a while, you've got it all, the information. They don't need any more information. Right. And, and you know, why, what is, what is no matter, regardless of where you go, even in this hospital where I got my surgery, they want to get another x-ray. I've got to have all, fill out all these pages of information. Yeah. So. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned wrong. this. Um, and it's so true. Uh, it's so real that you have to just fill out the same forms all the time. And this is kind of that shallow medicine that we have today, right? So uh, I, I've made the case that everyone should own all their data. Uh, it's your data. You paid for it. And you have a vested interest. And it could even save your life. One of the things that people don't know, uh, which is remarkable, is that 10% of scans in this country, we're talking about billions and billions of dollars, are repeated unnecessarily because the patient can't get a hold of their scan. So they just have to, oh, well, we'll have to just do it again. And those are really expensive, by the way. So uh, if you had all your data, and you, you wouldn't be filling out all these forms because you would just send that data, Here, here's my baseline, boom, and you would just give it. In Estonia, of all places, that's the way it works, right? And other countries, like Finland, Sweden, Switzerland, that's how it works. But in this country, we still have these forms with the clipboard, and you <laughs> You say, wait a minute, this is 2019. What's the matter here? So uh, we, can, we can do better than this. That doesn't even require artificial intelligence. That just requires uh, human endeavor to make it better. One of the problems with moving the use of artificial intelligence in medicine is federal reimbursement for the costs associated with it and the doctor's willingness to say that it can contribute to the diagnosis process. Do you have any comments on that? Uh, what was the first part? The federal reimbursement. Uh, well, the first part is you need the federal reimbursement for all the artificial information data that would be made available to the doctor. The telemedicine aspect of some of it, all of these parts are not always reimbursed either through the federal government or the insurance system. Well, uh, at the moment, there isn't much um, of this being used in, in the U.S. Uh, so I don't think the reimbursement thing has come into play. The only area where it's starting to take hold is in radiology. There's about 20 FDA-approved algorithms for various types of scans, largely. Um, Otherwise, there's been clearance for things like the Apple Watch that detects your atrial fibrillation rhythm, which obviously isn't a reimbursement uh, from, the, from the government. So it's all done behind the scenes. That is, the health systems that adopt this uh, to, to improve accuracy and speed for the radiologist, 
they don't they don't get reimbursement for it. They've just decided that it's going to become this, the standard of care. So we haven't really confronted that that issue at, at this juncture. Okay, uh, over here, maybe in cables okay, we'll right here in the front. Thank you. Uh, two two questions. One is, do you think uh, deep learning is actually going to enable? Uh, people on in rural health centers where um, a kind of para physician uh, personnel can now become more engaged uh, in bringing the care to healthcare. Yes. Yeah, so this is another uh, correlation uh, correlate that is to the um, inequities. So we have a big rural population that, uh, by many metrics, has substandard care. Uh, Today, telemedicine is pretty primitive. It's basically just a video chat, which, you know, you can only do so much during a video chat. But where that can take us into the, the next uh, uh, phase is to exchange data. So yeah, there are lots of sensors and even doing some lab tests that people can do on their own that are coming alive quickly. And so when that is a data exchange, that's a way to reach people anywhere. Uh, and in fact, Going back to the All of Us program, a lot of our people are coming from rural uh, areas. Um, so the other thing that I think is really vital to the story about the gift of time and improving care is that all people have more uh, autonomy, relative autonomy. So whether, wherever you live, if you are able to generate your own data and have algorithmic support, that's going to not only help you, but it also frees up doctors because they obviously uh, will have to devote less time to that. So there is a lot we want to do to uh, uh, empower patients irrespective of their geography. It's my second question, by the way, I'm Robbie Diaz-Brinton from University of Arizona, um, is do you think that deep learning could be applied to clinical trials? I work in the Alzheimer's field. Those trials you know, will last typically 18 months, uh, maybe longer. Uh, that's a long time to try to detect a signal um, that there's been target engagement or movement on a biomarker. Um, do you think deep learning can actually be applied to data very early on in a clinical trial to determine responders versus non-responders? Yes. Yeah, in fact, there's been a few studies to show that exactly. The problem we have is not so much deep learning to predict uh, in ways that we couldn't today, but we don't have anything to do about it. So yes, the problem we have with, with this uh, technology is you want it to be highly actionable, so you want to apply it to things where you know you can make a difference. But you're right. It may help in the future clinical trials to get at an earlier point in time. How prepared <laughs> is our research enterprise to deal with these things, especially when they fall outside of our, our current paradigms of research? How, how, how will the research enterprise deal with it? Yeah, well, because it feels it's actually, like it's actually it's going to explode a lot of the current ways we're thinking about things. Yeah, it, it's interesting you bring that up, but it's actually uh, we have to rely on the research um, uh, to make all this stuff real. Because if we don't have prospective studies, most of the studies so far with deep learning are retrospective in these uh, data sets, big, labeled pristine data sets, but that's very different than the real world, clinical testing, ideally with a randomized trial or compelling data. So we really need the research enterprise to do this right and you know, go through the peer review and, and also study it in implementation. So one thing that you're also touching on 
is that just you have this great algorithm and it's now you know it's really accurate and it's validated in patients and it's done uh, prospectively. That's great. But then how does it work in the real world? That's the implementation phase. Because we've already learned, for example, that an algorithm is very site-specific, so it's only done in one health system. It may not work in another or ancestry-specific. So you want to see how it works in real world, and you never want to let your guard down because, remember, in a doctor-patient thing, it's a one-to-one -one thing, and if you make a mistake, somebody gets hurt, it's low numbers of people, but here an algorithm could hurt a lot of people really quickly. So this is, we, we need research that's kind of a continuous research to detect that. Yeah, let's go over to this side of the room. Hi, thank you very much. Um, David Rosenthal from Yale School of Medicine. Quick question about sort of the time horizon of when this is going to happen and we're going to see some of these realization gains. There was just a recent um, Nature paper a couple months ago you saw about um, speech generation from neural nets where they put uh, some electrodes on people who are having epilepsy surgery and the computers were able to make human uh, understandable speech. And the question is these amazing things that are happening with AI and neural nets, how soon will we see real application of them for stroke victims? Right. Is it years? Is it decades? Yes. Well, David bring up a great one. And with your interest in the, the mental health side, it's really, I don't know if you saw this, but so the, the study that was striking, it was done at UCSF, and there were um, five people where they were working on uh, epilepsy surgery to deal with the site of the seizure. But what they did was they, they recorded the electrical activity of the brain to see if they could go from brain activity to speech directly. And he did. In fact, they had the recordings, and it's just amazing. So without the person talking, just from the brain signals, they were talking. Now, why is that so important? Well, as David's pointing out, if, you have, uh, if you're uh, paralyzed and you, and, or you've had a stroke, and, but you're, you're, it's only affecting your ability to talk, not your, in, in your brain center, this is amazing technology. So this whole idea of the, the brain uh, unlocking things, who would ever thought you could just go from brain signals to actually talking? Um, so this is exciting. And so the, the, the follow-up, that was just in five people, but the, the recordings were, were mind-blowing, literally. Uh, so there, that's going to happen quickly. I would say in the next couple of years, certain patients, this will be, uh, it's, it's not that difficult to do. And it would really change the lives of those people. Okay, one more, and then I'm going to ask a question. Hi, Shereen Gabriel, Rush University. A lot of the illnesses we deal with today are related to health behaviors. So can you comment on how AI or deep learning can help us uh, improve these health behaviors, whether it's around diet or exercise or smoking? Yeah, that's a big one. So the toughest nut to crack is to get people to practice a healthier lifestyle. Uh, we are seeing some things that are heading in that direction. So, for example, in Finland, they did a very large study where they gave people their heart genetic risk scores, which we now can do very inexpensively and accurately. And a, a very large proportion of the people did change their behavior. They stopped smoking. They lost weight. They increased their physical activity. So having data for some people is enough to, uh, to make a difference. But... One of the things that uh, we, David and I were talking about this before we got started uh, is about diet. It's a fundamental thing, and we all would like to have food as medicine, and we never had a way to do that. And we don't have it yet today, but we're inching our way to that. So the whole idea is that you can now, with these multi-layered data of 
your gut microbiome, your physical activity, what exactly you're eating and drinking, everything of that, uh, your sleep, your stress level, all these things can be analyzed through machine learning. And they already have shown, uh, and with sensors, like a glucose sensor, to give what is the right diet for you to avoid glucose spikes, or now, last week, triglyceride spikes and insulin levels. That isn't exactly, oh, we're preventing cancer or preventing Alzheimer's or, or heart disease, but it's for you a customized, bespoke diet recommendation. And it come, I, I did this experiment, and I had amazing surprises as part of it. So a lot of it was sobering. My favorite foods got rated a D, and things that I thought were lethal got A+. a plus. But it is a wake-up call. And uh, we're, there is no commercial entity that's, that's out there that's doing it right, and it isn't quite ready yet. But just to give you the sense that that might be, instead of saying everybody should do this, you know, this activity, this diet, to have it done on an individualized basis, maybe that will help. Yeah. I'm hoping bourbon and chocolate will be my A's. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Let me, so I, I actually want to ask a metaphysical question on that exact point. Uh, as we learn a lot of we get this information. My question is, are we more disalike than we thought, or are we more alike? So uh, in diets, we've learned we're, pretty, we're much less alike. Yeah, so I think the startling thing is the more we probe this with this so-called deep phenotyping, the more we realize that we're incredibly unique. And going back to that study that was just reported on the diet, identical twins had markedly different responses to foods as far as their glucose, triglycerides, and insulin. And every way we look at it, uh, we are so remarkably unique. And the problem we have is the way medicine evolved is it treated everybody the same. Everybody should have this screening test. Everybody should eat this food. Everybody should take this medicine if you have this particular diagnosis. It just turns out that's just wrong, and it's a lot of waste, a lot of mistakes. We can do better than this. Okay, the book is Deep Medicine. Eric Topol. <laughs> Eric Topol is a professor of molecular medicine. He founded the Scripps Research Translational Institute. He's one of the 10 most cited researchers in medicine and author of three bestsellers. His latest book is Deep Medicine, How Artificial Intelligence Can Make Healthcare Human Again. David Brooks is an op-ed columnist for the New York Times and executive director of Weave, the social fabric project at the Aspen Institute. Their conversation was held in June at Aspen Ideas Health. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The health team is Peggy Clark, Ruth Katz, Katie Drasser, Tracy Anderson, Natalie Johnson, Deb Cunningham, and Jamie Davido. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.